listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. Send in your question or comment. To participate in the show, you can text or call 757-774-8482. Or to email the show, you can go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link and send your question or comment there. We'll use it as part of the show. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the show. It's the Fret Files Podcast, the guitar tech podcast. My name is Eric Daw. I'm a longtime guitar builder and repairman. And today's co-host is Nat. Hello, Nat. Hi. Welcome back. Thank you for welcoming me back. Oh, yeah. <sighs> Greetings. I will read the listener submitted questions and Eric will try to answer them the best he can, drawing on his experience as a professional luthier, mm-hmm. you've had mm-hmm. several moments to prepare. What <laughs> is on your bench lately, Eric? Lately, I've had a few um, really nice vintage guitars across the bench here. Ooh, that's what we like to hear. Uh, I have a few customers who will, you know, they'll buy nice guitars on Reverb or wherever they buy them from a store. And, you know, in... Houston or wherever, and they'll just have them drop shipped to me directly I've to go that. through yep. and set it up with, you know, like this one guy in particular likes flat wound strings and he tunes down a whole step. So all his guitars have to be set up specifically for his for his strings and tuning. Mm-hmm. So he's a, he has everything shipped to me when he buys stuff, and he just bought a 66 Tele. It's beautiful. Whoa. What color is it? Is it beautiful uh, it, it lake was blonde. No, it was, it was factory blonde. Oh, man. Your run-of-the-mill garden variety blonde, which I love. And it's great. Uh, Telecaster. Yeah, it was a, man, it was a nice guitar. Now, is this the one that had slightly strange finish checking or finish yeah. in a way that, here's what was interesting to me, was, and you told me this, if you had done that to a guitar... Or if someone had done that to a guitar, people would say, that looks awful and fake. (laughs) Well, yeah, not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't look fake to me, but it... It's non-standard, probably not It's non-standard, and what I think, it it was a very fragile finish. Like, it it looked like it had been maybe moisture damaged. So, not only lacquer checked, but very 3D... Lacquer checking. Some, yeah, there was like cupping in the, the edges were stuff. raised, right? Yeah, poor thing. So, you know, to me, I mean, it was like thinking a really humid environment. Yeah. Very humid. But uh, if I made a replica like that, I think that the complaint would be, oh, this finish is too fragile. Yeah, because you couldn't fix it down with lacquer overcoats and... and I mean, that you, would defeat the purpose anyway. Yeah, you wouldn't want to. Yeah. I mean, it was a stock finish. It was original. But, you know, in the early, early 
tellies were like that too, like broadcasters, you know. That's why you could see grain and... Yeah, well, the finish, the finishes, uh, I read this in Nacho Banos's book, mm-hmm. that uh, they didn't really have the prep work figured out yet. And okay, the, yeah. they had paint adhesion problems. So those early finishes are really yeah. flaky. It's like 90s GM yeah. cars. And so guys really want an authentic looking one. Uh, you know, if you're going to make a replica, they want it to look authentic. But in order to make it look authentic, you have to actually paint it wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, with like not do a very good work. job. Yeah, with poor adhesion. Mm-hmm. Bad um, formulas of the stuff. Yeah. Which inevitably is going to, you know, guys are going to complain about that, saying, oh, this, I love the way this looks, but the finish is too fragile, man. It flakes off on my belt buckle. Well, yeah. guess what? A real one would, yeah, too. ironic complaint, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it is. So that's been fun. I've got a 64 uh, Jaguar in the shop right now to... I'm going through. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I've had some fun 60s fenders coming through the shop. That's what the people like to hear. I'm, I'm sure they all yeah. envision that 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 are nonstop million dollar guitars coming through here. Well, there's not. No, there aren't. No. Um and I also have been working on it's interesting when I get old guitars back. So guitars that I made mm-hmm. come back through for like a a visit, you know? Yeah, a tune-up. A, a tune-up. So I've got a couple of guitars that I made years ago in the shop right now that I'm just going to go through and set them up and dial them in, make sure they're still performing properly. Now, were and that's kind of fun. Were there differences? Did you have different finishes? Did you have paint adhesion problems in no. the early stages? You know, one of, one of them that came back to me here just recently reminded me, I just, I love the way the neck felt. And it reminded me, it reminded me, I used to use this paint only on the necks. Uh, and it was a brand of lacquer that I could get that they discontinued. Yeah. And I loved the way it felt. And that's why I used it for necks because it really didn't get sticky like lacquer sometimes gets. Huh. It was a great lacquer, but whatever they whatever additive they had in the lacquer it would just it would dry super hard and it would get like a nice um like the feeling of an old uh wooden banister or something oh like, yeah you know hand worn like satiny not gummy yeah. yeah oh yeah and my heart was broken when that lacquer became discontinued so i haven't been able to use it for years you can't buy it anymore i don't know why they discontinued it but they did Dang it. Yeah. Well, so that was interesting to see that guitar and how that paint is holding up and remind myself that I can't get that paint that I like anymore. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> but the paint I'm using now, I like it great. So it's all good. It's still good? Good. Uh, what uh, else? Let's see. There's two guitars on your bench. Oh, an old one came back for a retread yeah. or something. Oh, yeah. Well, that's good. I've also been shipping stuff out like crazy, which I always do. But uh, I... Just recently sold my personal Wurlitzer 200A electric, you know, electric piano. Oh, boy. Well, I had to. Yep, I just did. I've had a lot of uh, automotive repair bills lately that I just couldn't justify having. You know, I'm watching the prices just go up and up on on the internet for how much these Wurlitzers sell for. And I got that thing for cheap. 
Mm-hmm. And my God, they're worth, they're selling for five grand. And part of the opportunity cost figure is you won't ever find it again for cheap. Like well, that Hammond organ I got that you had yeah. to, we had to haul in your Ford Ranger. And yeah. my drum set was a hundred dollars. Yeah. You know, are are we ever going to find that again? It's possible. Chance upon it. I it, less than it used to be. I think. I've owned three Wurlitzer electric pianos. Oh. And I've never, you know, paid the thousands of dollars that they're worth. Yeah. I mean, I always find them at some weird church. Yeah. Chance know, across at, them, I guess. Uh, bazaar, some weird, you know, yard sale or something. Mm-hmm. Or some pawn shop. Yeah, but at some point. Gosh, yeah, you need, they get drawn out by the gravity of that money. Yeah, and the internet, you know, makes it easy for oh, everyone. Yeah. It's the great equalizer. You can look up what something's worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can ship it. Oh yeah. Well, that was the hard part. You ever boxed up a Wurlitzer two hundred A? I haven't. No. Well, let me tell you. Is it boxy? I earned my five thousand dollars doing that. Oh gosh. Oh boy. Ship it across hey, the country. Hey, did your uh, did your car repairs come in threes? Do those do those come in bunches too? Yeah, they do. Well, I wondered. Yeah, uh, they do. It's a heck of a thing. It's a bunchy world. I have three cars, which may sound excessive. Oh yeah, to those of you fancy. in Europe, but pretty highfalutin. Uh, they're not fancy cars. They're the newest one is like twenty three years old. But That's pretty um, new. Yeah, but they all break down at the same time. Yep, yeah. in bunches. Yeah, I don't know why that is. Mm. We have some calls. Oh, that's great. Yeah, let's take them. Hi, Eric. It's Bob in Boulder County. Good. I just listened to the most recent podcast about the whole thing with Epiphone and why Gibson bought them and why they competed against themselves. And I think I might have an answer, although, in the words of the famous pizza guy that ran for president, I don't have facts to back this up. Herman Cain? I think that <laughs> dealerships, and I work in a guitar store in the late 60s, and if you were the Gibson dealer in Cincinnati, you didn't want, Gibson wouldn't allow another guitar dealer in Cincinnati to open up shop half a mile away because they had protected sales territory. Sure. Yeah. I think that if, that Gibson decided that they would um, as an equal to Gibson so they could set up another dealership nearby and therefore sell more guitars. Yeah. Anyway, that's my theory. I'm not sure if it's true, but I think it might be. Great hey. podcast. Love and everything. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate that. I think I think you're on to something there. He's on to something, and yeah. I touched on that uh in the last podcast with uh with Lauren. I don't did you listen to the last podcast, Nat? I didn't hear it. Yeah. No. Was it really good? I thought I, it was great. It went fine. And I mean, they all—they're all the same. Uh, it all you could ask together. me at any point. Did you listen to the last last podcast? And my answer would be the same. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, no, I hear you. I don't really listen. to <laughs> I know the show it's gross. Either. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have to. I speak them, and then I go through and edit them a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and by the time I purposes do that, only. it's like okay, I know what was in this show. I don't yeah. need to listen to. It. Uh, but yeah, we touched on that. I mean, the because. I think that you're onto something there, Bob, because implied in the information I was giving, uh, yeah, Gibson, for some reason, the parent company had Epiphone set up as like direct comp- 
competition to Gibson, then it doesn't make much sense until you think about what Bob just said, which is territorial dealerships. Which Exclusivity. Is, that's still a thing. It still is. You know, if there's two guitar stores in town, Fender won't... Uh, won't sell to both. No. Yeah. Yeah. So it won't makes sense. Won't grant a license to sell. Yeah. It absolutely makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Doesn't it? Good one. Good one, Bob. I like it. Feel free to call anytime. Yeah. Hi, Eric. It's Ben here in the UK. I hope you're well. Oh, yes. I've got a question ben. about... Scratch plates on precision bases. Scratch plate is such a British t- term. Well, that's the whole, that's what happens. This guy drops like eight or ten terms in there. Do you remember welly? No. This is, yeah. It just doesn't have the welly. That's like it doesn't have the oomph. Let's, let's see how many more he does. This is going to be great. So we call these, we call a scratch plate a pit guard. <laughs> in, uh, well, do we call it in, in the, the States? In the podcast family? We but can, we can call open. it a scratch plate. Yeah, come on. That's fine. That's absolutely All right. fine. All right, let's see what Ben has to say. Good. Plates on precision bases. Uh, I pulled out my old precision copy the other day. It's like a Japanese one from the 70s, I think. I've had it forever. Um, I got it out of the case and I noticed that the scratch plate, you know, that the pickups are attached to, has kind of um, started bowing away from the body so it's kind of like you know like a belly bump on an acoustic guitar it looks like that um i don't know what's happened i haven't been keeping it anywhere particularly hot or anything but i wondered if you had any tips on how to flatten scratch plates that have kind of become deformed Uh, my initial thought was to like use a heat gun on a low temperature and then put some weights on it or something but i didn't know if you had a tip um to make it flat again because now obviously it's kind of come away from the body a bit in the middle um, so the pickups are a bit of a weird angle it's still playable but if there's a way to make it flat again that would be fantastic thanks for all your help cheers cheers mm. indeed cheers yeah it's also very British No, oh, that's great cheers he's a fount of them yeah I, I, you see this a lot he did not mention did he did he mention was it uh, single ply or triple ply he didn't mention. Is that a factor? It is. I'll so be the doggone. single ply ones are real thin. Okay. And it's very common on the single ply pit guards to warp like that. Get a little wobbly. Yeah, if they get hot or if they get just you know if they get old. Yeah, the the plastic will start to shrink and yeah. then it'll cause deformities. I've seen a lot of people fix this problem with double sided tape. Down to the wood? Yeah. If there's wood underneath, to, well, so there can be the a cavity or paint. something. Yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Adhere it, to body. The, adhere it to the body. Not the smartest thing. I, don't, I mean, it's fine, but, you know, if you ever have to take the pit guard off, then it, it causes a problem. It's a little bit weird. Yeah. Tr- trying hmm. to flatten those out, uh, it, it's potentially, you know, it could be possibly done... Uh, with maybe a heat gun, but boy, that could get out of hand really fast. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't know until it's well tr- out of hand. And huh? trying to get it perfectly flat is probably a fool's errand. Yeah. I would just play it how it is as long as it's close, you know? Unless it's just awful. If it's three ply, that's, um, that, that would be surprising to me if it's, if it's shrinking and deforming and that warping, much. Huh? Yeah. 
You know, uh, in the old days, we have warped records. I had a warped record when I was young. My dad put this. My favorite record was on the windowsill, and it warped it. Warped in the sound. Yep, yeah. and I turned to a life of crime right then and there. Yeah. And uh, people used to heat records in the oven between... Oh, oven might be like range, or there's probably some Britishism, right? <laughs> there's some other word for this. Yeah. Between glass plates, because I guess oh. the glass was so really, really as low as it could get, and then weighted between glass. The strange thing is then you probably have more material, because it kind of needs to, if it's warped, it's shrunk and expanded in some areas. Anyway, I don't know. I would think on a vinyl LP record that that would deform the grooves. Because, yeah, if you're applying heat, that's what I'm getting at. It's like, it's not going to go back exactly the way it was before, because... Well, all right, something got out of whack. Now you're going to yeah. apply the same process to make it go back. I mean, this yeah. is what the second law of thermodynamics is all about, is you can't make the record go <laughs> back the way it was. A lot of times what happens is, um, like on a like on a P-base where the, the pickups come through the pit guard, but they're not attached to the pit guard, they're actually screwed into the wood. Oh, okay, they are. So everything needs to line up perfectly. And a lot of times what happens is... As a pit guard shrinks, or if pickups get swapped out, or something happens, where now the pickups are pushing against the pit guard on one side, then that can cause a warp, and it'll cause a okay. It can cause things to bubble and and warp. So you got you want to make sure that um, there's plenty of clearance uh, for everything that is passing through the pit guard. In this case, pickups. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't skew it. Yeah, but there's not a magic bullet for that one. I'm sorry. It's kind of an interesting academic question more than anything, probably. Yeah, Kind of fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What else you got? It's always good. Oh, we got one. Yeah, no more calls, but guess what we do? Letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Stacks and stacks of letters. Hey, Eric. Hi. I have an old... So far, so good, huh? Harmony Sovereign. I love those. I know, it's awesome. Acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. And a modern Loudon acoustic. And they both have pinless bridges. Oh, yeah, sure. They both do. It got me thinking about bridge styles. With these guitars, the strings pass through, pass through holes drilled horizontally through the rosewood rather than being held vertically with pins. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, I'm following. Find this in the light. Classical guitars are also like this. Yep. Is there an advantage to having a pinless bridge for a steel string acoustic? Hmm. How do you feel about pinless bridges? Is it better to have a traditional bridge with pins, or is there some advantage to a pinless bridge? Thanks, Jim. Hmm. Is there an advantage? You know, the only advantage I can think of really is in the case of manufacturing, it's probably easier. That's probably why Harmony did it. Just have a glue-on thing without holes through the top yeah. and a bridge plate. But I don't thing. know. I don't I'm going to speculate rampantly that it's, it might be good to have some torque on that, on that whole bridge and have it somewhat attached to the bracing system with a bridge, bridge plate. Yeah, I like... 
the idea that so it, it's kind of like it's kind of the same idea as like a top loader yeah, on a telecaster. I was yeah. just thinking that. Yeah. Um, I would prefer the strings to pass through the wood, to pass mm-hmm. through the top yeah. in the in the case of an acoustic guitar. So I prefer pinned bridges, but it's not gonna it's not gonna turn me away from a harmony sovereign or mm-hmm. or a Loudon for that example. The yeah. the Loudons are great acoustics. So I don't know. It's a stylistic, you know, manufacturing difference, but it's not a, I don't know, trying to think of a giant advantage or disadvantage one way or the other. I don't know. I, I, but in my mind, yeah, I prefer the ball ends of the strings to be snugged up against the bridge plate, pulling on that rather than pulling against the glue of right, the that's bridge, all you've got, and, you know, and then up higher at yeah. a at a some space from the the um, top. I would say that I don't see I don't see pinless bridges coming in more often for uh, needing uh, the to get stuck back down, needing to get the bridges reglued. Yeah, they so, got different torque on them. So I don't know. So yeah, not a huge advantage or disadvantage either way, Jim, but um, interesting question nonetheless. It is. Let's Thank try you. this one. Thank you, sir. Hello, Eric. When making pickups, do you dip them in hot wax or in lacquer? Hmm. I have heard that dipping them in lacquer keeps them slightly microphonic. Huh. Which method do you use? Ret. I what do. He works on frets. Yeah, I do both. I do both at the same time. No, as part of the manufacturing process, when I make a pickup bobbin, like Fender style pickup, the Alnico rods uh, are basically what holds everything together. Top and the bottom. There's a top plate, a bottom plate, and Mm -hmm. six Alnico rods. I dip those in lacquer before the pickup gets wound. So if you're talking about potting pickups i only use wax i don't i don't pot pickups in lacquer but before the pickup gets wound it gets dipped in lacquer then after it gets wound then it gets dipped in wax so technically i do both i have heard that guys will uh will uh will pot pickups in lacquer is that right yeah and a lot of it goes back to um i know that that's how Fender did it for some reason. I don't know why. But in the early days, like Telecaster pickups, bridge pickups were wax potted, neck pickups were lacquer potted. Huh. Why? I don't know. It doesn't make much sense to me why they were... And and why would they be different? Treated differently. Craziest, yeah. It's very weird. Hmm. And it'd be a fascinating question to ask Leo Fender if he were still around. Um because it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't know why they did that. Hmm. But I don't think that dipping in them in lacquer leaves leaves it slightly more microphonic than dipping them in wax. I think that has to do with other factors. But, huh. but yeah, either one will certainly get the job done, and Fender did it both ways. So Ooh, yeah. I like that. Yeah, good I, question, Rhett. Thank you. Yeah, I learned something. Good one. Hi, Eric, and of course, Nat. Love the Solid Sound book, and it also made the perfect surprise gift for, 
Oh, I thought he was going to say Mother's Day. Remember that? It was suggested as Mother's Day. Surprise gift for to our bandmate and guitar resurrector. It is suitable for gifts. Cool. I want to do the GNL passive bass and treble mod to my Japanese strat with Texas specials. Oh, that was in the book. Oh, yeah. He's got it in quotes. It's a real thing. It currently has the Fender Grease Bucket mod, and that's just okay sounding, but better than stock. My two problems are, he's got an enumerated list. That's what we like to see. And how many numbers? Do you have your copy? Just read the question. (laughs) I'm sorry. My two problems are, number one, finding the one meg reverse audio taper split shaft pot. Okay. Okay. Number two. Liking the sound of this well-playing guitar that I've owned since 1992. Hmm. And number three, been following, mm-hmm. realizing I might not be a Strat fan. Mm. Oops, I added an extra problem. I know you can solve one issue for me. The other two might need therapy. Thanks again, Jay. <laughs> Thanks, Jay. I like that. His two um, problems are finding the one meg reverse audio taper split shaft pot, and then... It sounds like he likes it well enough as it is. Is that how you read that? I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not Except sure. the therapy ones? Maybe yeah. The therapy ones. So we'll not address those. That's yeah. between you and your therapist. Your friend. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but yeah, so uh, it is a little bit of an unusual uh, potentiometer that's used in that schematic. It's G&L used it in some of their... Uh, Strat style. I don't think they called them Strat. What were they? Comanches or something? GNL Comanche? No, just GNL guitars. Who but, knows? You know, if you think about a Strat, it's got three pickups, it's got a switch, it's got three knobs. An un- unusual design in, in that it, there's a master volume, and then there's a tone knob for the neck pickup, and a tone knob for the middle pickup. Nothing for the bridge. And then no tone knob for the bridge pickup. Yeah. That's the original design. That's cool. Kind of weird. What Leo did in his G&L days was, I think, a little smarter and uh, more functional, master volume, and then a bass tone control, and then a treble tone control. Overall, huh? Yeah. So you had a volume, bass, and treble. Mm -hmm. Pretty neat. Very. I think it's a cool mod. Um, And the way to get that potentiometer is to go right through GNL. GNL sells them. Huh. Yeah. Because they're that rare that um, other parts houses don't tend to have them as much and they kind of they might got be, a big box of them. Yeah, they might be out there, but that's the easiest way I know of is you, GNL has an online shop where you can order things. I don't know the uh, URL and really would it oh, matter because yeah. all you're going to do is the you go to Google, you yeah, search. That's what we do. 250K G&L. No, well, this guy's saying one meg. Okay, one meg. That's right. Sorry. Either. Thank either you one. for correcting me. I don't want to be pedantic here. One <laughs> meg reverse audio taper split, split shaft, shaft pot. pot G yeah. ampersand L. Mm-hmm. Let it ride. You may be able to, you know... If you don't know this, then it's it might be hard to find. So there, because uh, there, it may be available elsewhere if you know how to look for it. Most uh, manufacturers won't call it reverse audio taper. 
they come in three styles, potentiometers, A, Mm -hmm. B, and C. Well, that's not helpful at all. Yeah. So A is audio taper. Okay. B is a linear taper pot. Okay. And C is reverse audio taper. So if you find a one meg C pot, that's a reverse audio taper. I'll be doggone. Yeah. Well, we just learned a thing. That's a good one. Yeah, it's another thing. Well, what do you think? I think that we should uh, take a little break, and we'll be right back with more after this. After these messages, we'll be right back. This episode of the Fret Files podcast is brought to you by Apex Coffee Roasters. Imagine always having fresh roasted coffee in your home. Now, imagine you didn't even have to leave the house for it. A subscription with Apex Coffee Roasters makes all of this possible. You choose the plan that best suits your needs, and they handle the rest. Their roaster will select a coffee option just for you and send it your way. Discounts are applied if you get a six-month or a year-long subscription. And shipping included if you're in the USA. Great coffee every morning. Just got a little bit easier. That's apexcoffeeroasters.com. And if you go there and use my promo code, you get an additional 10% off. That's pinup, P-I-N-U-P. That's at apexcoffeeroasters.com. We've talked a lot about neck straightening irons on the show, and people write to me and they say, Eric, where can I get one? Well, until now, I didn't have anywhere to send people because nobody makes them anymore, except for my buddy Rick at playersgearmusic.com. You can go to Players Gear Music, you can order a neck straightening iron, some people call it a neck press or a neck heater. It is an invaluable tool in my shop. I use it all the time. I'd be lost without one of these. I I love having a neck straightening iron, and Rick is making a really, really stout industrial. It, I I think it I think it's the best one that I've used, and I've I've used a lot. I've used uh, the commercially available ones that they used to sell in the 70s and 80s, but they don't sell them anymore. Well, now you can get one from playersgearmusic.com they're $7.49 I know that seems like a lot it's it's a tool I tell you what it's going to pay for itself a hundred times over if you go to playersgearmusic.com scroll down on the main page scroll 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 down to where it says fan of the fret files podcast you click that that adds one to your cart and it's 50 bucks off. So instead of 749, it's 699. 699, free shipping, and it's yours. A neck straightening iron, playersgearmusic.com has them, and you need one. I'm telling you. So go to playersgearmusic.com and check it out and don't forget to tell Rick that the Fret Files podcast sent you. Dear Eric, Thank you very much for your great podcast and the nice solid sound book I just received. Here's my question. When you pull the high E string down past the end of a fret, you normally get a pretty garbage sounding note or just buzzing noise. Okay. However, I have a guitar that in certain spots sounds quite musical when I do it. That's because it catches cleanly on certain frets. And these frets even happen to be in pretty sensible interval distance from each other. This allows for some pretty unique lines that I couldn't play otherwise. And I'm wondering 
if that can be achieved on purpose and, more or less, across the whole neck. I'm thinking about choosing, say, the notes in a pentatonic in a pentatonic scale, I guess, and filing down the fret ends of all the other frets just a bit so that the dislocated string won't catch on them. Hmm. I have a kit-built S-style guitar I don't mind experimenting on, but if it's an idea that obviously won't work, say because you'd have to make the changes so drastic as to affect normal playability, I'd rather leave it unharmed. Any thoughts from you would be highly appreciated. All the best, Andy with an I. Andy, th- this is this gets into some pretty avant-garde thinking yeah, here. Yeah, that's where he's going. If you're pulling the if you're pulling the string off of the fretboard and it's hanging up on the on a sharp s- yeah, sharp frets fret end. somewhere on the neck. I look at that and call that a defect. And I would file and sand and polish all of those so that they're huh. smooth so that the string doesn't catch up on the fret ends. That's what I would call it. Or just maybe use the one time when you really, really like it and don't expect it on every fret end. Yeah. Or, yeah. You are experiencing this and calling it some kind of a cool new sound. Yeah. Now, I, who am I <laughs> to discourage an artist, right? And really, what is a guitar but a tool for an artist, yeah. right? So, if you found a way to make the paint br- the bristles on your paintbrush make a more beautiful picture than what the standard paintbrush is going to do, then go for it. But don't ask a technician if it's okay, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm telling you, you just have sharp frets and that you should, that you should sand them right. and polish them. And you're working towards these normative values of yeah. classic <laughs> classic yeah. guitar building. Right. Ah. So you do what you want to do, Andy. But um to me that you just have sharp fret ends that need to be that need to be dressed. Yeah. Shine on, crazy diamond. I've been listening to both the Fret Files podcast with Eric Daw. Oh, I said I should have said that in the right voice. And the Tava pad podcast, is that what we call it? The absolute, dang it. T-A-V-A, the I truth about vintage amps. Yeah, thank you. I needed that. Podcast with Skip Simmons, the amp guru. I have years of experience in both guitar and amp repair and restoration. Having worked at a vintage, having worked at vintage shops, I have seen and worked on stuff that most haven't. Cool. For better or worse. I enjoy learning new ways to do things from both of these podcasts. What I'd like to highlight is that an an important point they both touch on is to use your brain and think about what you're working on. Mm -hmm. There are different answers and approaches to everything you do. Sometimes you may not be ready to tackle a project. Sometimes it takes you years working on the same home-built amp to really start to understand what all is going on and what not to do. But it is really case-dependent. Is the value in making it work again to its best performance, or is it restoring a piece of history that you don't really want to change, if at all possible? Do you strip the finish 
of your vintage Epiphone casino to look like the Beatles? Mm, Probably not. You can't undo the past, even if it comes down to dust or smell. Whoa. While experimenting is essential, it can be done on something that doesn't really matter what is done to it. Thank you both for what you do. Jeff Lyman from Chicago. Thanks, Jeff. Really not a question in there for yeah, me to, to address. Uh, More of just a uh, contemplative... Uh, yeah, philosophical statement. Yes, yeah, philosophical statement, which is great. So I won't comment on it, but I will use this opportunity to say, buy my book. Go to solidsoundbook.com and order up my book. I'm telling you what, if you tinker on guitars, you're going to love it, especially if you tinker on guitar electronics. All right. It's a good one. Next question. Hi, Eric. I Hi. Yeah, good interaction. I build a lot of analog effects, so rewiring a guitar is in my wheelhouse, but some other things, for example, replacing a nut, not so much. I recently acquired a 78 Les Paul Standard with binding up the fretboard. The guitar stays in tune shockingly well for a Les Paul. It really doesn't move, even with aggressive string bending. Good. But the D string groove in the nut is slightly deeper than it should be. It's extremely playable. But the nut forces me to compromise on the neck relief and bridge height. Mm Mm-hmm. I went down the YouTube rabbit hole, and I'm pretty confident that I replace it myself. I have woodworking experience, so this kind of work isn't foreign to me. Here's the two-part question. What's number one? Enumerated list. What's your approach to replacing these nuts? Some say that you need to saw a kerf line in the center of the nut lengthwise almost all the way to the wood and gently pry the two sides out. Others say that after scoring around the nut with a razor, just use a block and a mallet, tap the nut from the fretboard side until it pops loose, and loosen it further until it can be pulled out. Is is one of these the preferred method? All right, let's address these as they come. So I've used both methods. Gibson Les Paul nuts can be one of the trickier ones to get out because oftentimes they're just... The, the way they're sandwiched in there and then painted over and glued in, oh yeah, they're in there good, man. Sometimes they're hard to get out, and Solid. they're hard to get out cleanly. So yes, to scoring around it, absolutely. You want to score around it. Uh, usually what I do is give it a tap, like you, like you mentioned in, mm-hmm. in method two. I will tap it uh, using a wood block and a mallet you know, give it a tap towards the tuners. And then I'll take fret cutters, which are big gnarly end cut, you know, cutters. Mm -hmm. And I'll grab onto the nut and then wiggle it and pull it, you know, extract it like a tooth, like a dentist would. Wow. Right? So that's usually what I do, but I've had them before where they won't respond to this. They're just glued in so tightly that you have to take... A, uh, I'll take a Dremel cutoff wheel and cut through it, um, you know, downward, and then collapse it in on itself. Yeah, okay. That way. Uh, or you can, if you're going to do it by hand, yeah, you can take a saw and saw through the center of it and then collapse it in on itself. But mm-hmm. yeah, which the method that works is the one to use, but mm-hmm. I try to tap them out first after yeah. scoring it. Yeah, 
Well, it's so. good to confirm that they are solidly there. Oh, yes. What's question number two? It is. Number two, what's your preferred brand type of nut for this guitar? Assuming you had a preferred brand. Looking online, it seems as though Tusk is a good brand, and that if I get a, pre, a pre-grooved one, I can transfer the bottom line of mine onto the new one, square the line off around all sides, and sand it down to that line. Okay. Are there any gotchas I need to look out for? Well, here's what I would tell you. I prefer bone, and I prefer to use nuts that aren't pre-slotted, and I don't, I'm not crazy about tusk with a Q, because it's not tusk with a K, it's tusk with a Q, and all it is, is plastic. I know a lot of guys are like, oh, no, this is engineered, special, you know, plastic, yeah, it's plastic. So it's a plastic nut. You really want to put a plastic nut on your really cool Les Paul. Mm-mm. I don't. Mm-mm. I don't even stock those. Yeah, it's fancy plastic, but still it's plastic. So I don't use them. I use bone almost exclusively unless somebody really begs me to use graphite or brass or something goofy. Um, I put bone nuts on everything. So I would encourage you to do the same. Getting a pre-grooved one and trying to give it a haircut to fit and make it right is, it's kind of a kludge amateur way to do it, in my Mm. opinion. All right. Do you want to finish that up? Well, I didn't know, (laughs) I didn't know if that was, you rested your case. Okay. Uh, P.S. I realize this is already a long message, but I thought you might find this interesting. I replaced all the electronics a while ago. The pots were installed on an aluminum plate to which everything is grounded, so no ground wire connecting the pots. The plate has a terminal in the center where the output from the switch and the jack are connected. There's a cover that screws into place over the plate so all of the electronics in the cavity are enclosed in aluminum. The switch cavity is also shielded with aluminum, and the ground wire is soldered to that as well. I'm curious whether you have ever seen that. Kindest regards, Pete Thompson. Yeah, sure. That's, yeah. Yes. Hi, Pete. Yeah, that's how they, that's how the Les Pauls were made back in the day. They had a, like a Faraday cage around the electronics. Huh. Yeah. Which is really overkill because they also use braided shielded wire. So it's really... Doubled. Yeah, it's really overkill. Might have, might have made something weird there. As far as replacing the nut on on your 78 Les Paul here, if you've never done this, Pete, he says he has some woodworking experience. Yeah. So maybe I'm maybe this is just going too far. But if you take that to a competent tech or luthier who is going to install a very nice bone nut on there, it's going to cost you maybe around a hundred bucks. Hmm. It's pretty, it's pretty cheap, really. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, if you've never done it, is this really the guitar that you want to practice on? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Making a nut is a pretty specialized thing. Each groove needs to be in exactly the right spot. 
It needs to be exactly the right width, the groove itself, and it needs to be exactly the right depth. That's the trick of making a nut, and then it needs to look nice, right? It needs to look like it wasn't your first job, right? Well, yeah. Uh, and maybe, you know, like if you're if you're the kind of woodworker that's just making mind-blowing stuff and you know what, you know you can make it, you know you can do it, you know you can make it look right, then forage ahead, my friend. But I just want to tell you that if you're going to do this yourself, I would rather, because this is a nice old guitar and it sounds like it's one that you like, I would rather this be your 10th nut rather than your first one. So that's just me being, erring on the side of caution. Well, you've, it, it's a skill that you don't develop on the first time. I, I, I tend to agree with you on that one. I think yeah. that was a good point. And using a pre-slotted one, here's the other thing about it, about pre-slotted ones. Typically, the slots are not in the right place yeah. for the guitar that you're putting it on. So nine times out of ten, if I've got a pre-slotted nut, I'll sand the, the slots off and start over because I know that it's not going to line up right with the guitar. Okay. So the pre-slotted cheat actually doesn't work most of the time. Because it's kind of universal and not specific. And, yeah, yeah. One size doesn't fit all. A hundred bucks to have a highly skilled individual sounds like a good dang deal. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm I'm persuaded. I'm glad you told him that. All right, next question. Okay. I'm reading and enjoying, that's how it starts, your book, Solid, Sta Solid Sound. Dang it. I'd like to begin to play around and build some pickups, but I am a little confused as to where to get parts. Do you have any recommendations? Thanks, Robert in Miami. Right on, Robert. Uh, if you want to play around building pickups, there are a number of places to get pickup parts from. All Parts, Stuart McDonald, mm -hmm. uh, Philadelphia Luthier Supply. Oh, yeah. Those are the three that I would recommend. There's a few others around the internet that I wouldn't recommend, so start mm -mm. start there. Stumac, Philadelphia Luthier Supply, and All Parts. And between those three outlets, there's probably not much that you won't be able to get there. I mean, they have pickup kits and frames and magnets and, you know, what, you know, ev everything you'd need. Um, there's some things that are cheaper if you get direct, like magnet wire I buy direct from uh, Remington. The manufacturer. Yeah, huh? yeah. Huh. Um, because oftentimes, you know, if you try to buy that through a... Uh, a middleman, it's marked up quite a bit, and that stuff is expensive, and I buy it in giant five-pound spools. So, mm -hmm. uh, but if you just if you're just building a couple pickups and want to get a one-pound spool, then I'm sure you could get one there at uh, one of the I don't one know of the three. I, maybe I think they sell. Stumac does. I don't know if the other two do. Anyway, best of luck there, Robert. Thank you. You see, you inspired him to make some pickups with that. That's great. Uh, I think that's fun. I love it. That's good. Hi, Eric and Nat. I've been debating picking up a copy of your Solid Sound book, yeah. but I'm primarily an electric bass builder, and I was wondering about trying some of the circuits out on bass and wondered about your thoughts on this. That was a... Never mind. 
For example, how would some of the Esquire wirings work for a P-Bass or Tele-Wiring work with jazz bass pickups? As I build from scratch, adding a switch isn't an issue. I appreciate experimentation is the key word here, but I don't want another book that will sit on a shelf no matter how good-looking it is. Doesn't like books. Jeez. I know. You didn't like them. Are there any wiring mods you have done on bass that you would recommend? Thanks for the great podcast. It makes my commute to work that much more enjoyable. Great. Andy. Thanks, Andy. Okay, I have a few things here. First of all. (laughs) Now are you unloading? Andy. (laughs) Get get ready for this. (laughs) Do it. Put on your seatbelt. Do it. On your commute. I think he's got it coming. Uh... Asking the author <laughs> if you should buy his book is a little bit like asking a dog if he's hungry. Yeah. Yes, you should buy my book. Oh, yeah, get two. It's, let me rephrase your question. Eric, <laughs> should I give you $22? <laughs> I'm going to say yes. Well, he doesn't want to put it on a shelf. Well, where else Where else you want to put it? You could put it on a coffee you table. You put it anywhere you want. Once you have it, I don't care what you do with it. You kitchen pitch, counter? Pitch it in the Thames. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, that's a river for uh, Americans. There you go. Uh, but, so, you know, I put a few decades worth of experience into that book. So Uh-oh. I'm kind of proud of it. And if you don't find it useful after your nominal fee of $22, then... I don't know what to tell you. Secondly, basses are are a little more straightforward than guitars. A bass kind of has one job, and that's to hold down the bottom end, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So you don't want out-of-phase sounds. No, you don't want... You don't want experimental, strange... You, you don't want to cut through as much. Electronics. Yeah. You don't want to put a capacitor in there to... You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You want a volume and a tone control, and those are going to be up all the way at on ten, probably. Yeah, don't touch on your gig. Me. Yep. So, no, I don't think the book is going to pertain to your bass wiring, but I still think you should buy it because yeah. you listen to the podcast and enjoy it. And what better way than to support me? You'll sleep better at night, Andy, <laughs> oh knowing oh no that you supported your oh. favorite podcast. Oh boy, we just lost a listener. I, well, it was. Yeah, maybe we we probably did. They canceled their no. free subscriptions. Hey, it's uh, it's just a way to support the podcast, and I put a lot of work and thought into it, and you might enjoy it. You might learn something. Yeah. That's all. But I don't think it's going to pertain to your base building. Well, that was a good comment that maybe we needed to draw even me through. Like, yeah, here's what it does. It just needs to go on ten. You're yeah. not you're not doing cool things. You d- please don't. If please I don't do cool things. No, if the bass player in in a band that I were in flipped a switch and all of a sudden his bass was yeah. out of phase. Yeah, he's like, "Guys, watch be like, this." Oh, we need a different bass wow, player. Wow, wow. That's kind of like Yeah. That's kind of like if you're doing the Seinfeld slapping yeah, going thing in a blues band like, "Oh, goink. Oh, we're going to need a different bass player." <sighs> I don't think it's I, I took exception to the, I've been debating, and then a poorly articulated kind of waffling thing, but I tried to keep it to myself because I'm only in an advisory role here. <laughs> it's all <So>. good. <laughs> it's all good, Andy. And really, you know, what do I have if I can't just poke fun at a, 
at a listener and a yeah. caller every now and then. But uh, I don't know. It's all anonymous anyway. How many Andes are there in the world? Well, there are two. We've got one with a Y. Cool. One yeah. with a Y and one with an I. If it wasn't for this, you'd have to go out there and fix guitars all day long. How about that? Yeah. That does it for this episode of The Fret Files. You just never know. You just never know what no. you're going to get with this show. It's in the you hands never of fickle know. fate. It's, it might be an interview. It might be a question about why you shouldn't buy my book. It might be it's, uh, it might be a different co-host. It might be it Matt. Might. It might be Lauren. It might be my sister Sage. You never know. You know what? I drive by a location quite often that was bleeped out of this podcast because that's how far afield we got. Yeah. And that was, I think, my favorite podcast moment. I did listen to that one, and just the full volume beep of this guy's. Oh yeah, I think I the business that. name. I drive by it and chuckle every time. So it, it is a bit of a free-for-all sometimes. Sometimes it is. But sometimes you might learn something, mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes you might feel like you've got a couple friends talking to you about guitars. Yeah. That's all. That's all we're really doing here. So participate in the show, and I'll do my best not to roast you. You can go to my website, ericdaw.com, click the contact link, and submit your question or comment there. We'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482 on your communication device, 757-774-8482. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye.